Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome to A Helping of History. I am your host, Dr. Angela Riado, and this show combines my three main passions, food, history, and helping others. Here we are passionate about having real, honest, and sometimes ridiculous conversations, and nothing is off limits. So sit back and enjoy A Helping of History. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode of A Helping of History. Today, we have a special guest, Mr. John Heckman, also known as the Tattoo Historian. John is an experienced historian and podcast host. He has worked as a historian and archivist with both the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He has also worked as a historical interpreter on and off historical battlefields. More recently, John has dedicated himself to his successful and just darn right fun, the Tattooed Historian podcast. And he also has various social media pages and platforms, some I've never even heard of. It is such an honor to have him on this show. So let's get started. And with that, welcome, John. I am probably a little too excited to have you on this show. How are you? I'm doing well, Angela. How are you? I'm very well. I've awesome. been thinking about this since we've scheduled it in my calendar. Really? I am so excited to have you on here. You're like a star, like a podcast star. I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm having a lot of fun, whatever it is I'm doing. Well, I'm so excited that you're here. And thank you for doing Yeah, thank you. And before we get started into history and maybe podcasting, I would love to know how you started your day. I had a weird start to my day, Angela, because I um, I had three hours of sleep last night, and uh, I, I went to bed at 1.30. I woke up at 4.30 and couldn't get back to sleep, so I went to the gym at 5 o'clock this well, morning. Well and done, it, you. Yeah, that's the earliest I've ever gone to the gym, and it was it was nice. It was a little crowded, but uh, but it was nice, and uh, you know everyone's keeping socially distanced, and uh, everyone's wearing their masks and, and doing well with that. But I, uh, I actually got up this morning and went and worked out. So that's a really rare day for me. I figured if I can't sleep, I might as well go work out. Well, that's, yeah, that's good self-care. Taking care of yourself, keeping yourself fit. Yeah, I figured that's the best way forward, especially since I turned 40. I'm kind of thinking about that more. So when you do sleep, what is your <laughs> typical morning look like? Do you, do you usually work out in the morning or do you kind of like to relax and have your coffee? Um, I'm definitely what they would consider like a second shift worker. Um, I'm not really a morning person. I mean, I'm chipper and stuff when I get up in the morning, I'm not an angry person or grumpy, but I just, it seems like it takes me a little while to get motivated to, to, you know, really get my engine going. Uh, so my typical morning is just getting up around, uh, eight 30 or so. I go to bed around one 30 in the morning. Um, uh, so I get my seven hours, I get up, I have my coffee for about two hours, and then I, I start my day about 10.30 in the morning, and uh, you know, I, might, I might have some, uh, some bacon or some chocolate chip pancakes or something like that to get my day started, because I'm like a little eight-year-old, where I got to have some chocolate chip pancakes and some milk or coffee, and, uh, and that's how I get my day started, and then it's right to the office to uh, start working on my brand. Oh, well, that's awesome. Chocolate chip pancakes sound amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan. Big fan. 
I'm also one of those people who could eat breakfast food for every meal. Yes, I'm like that too. I think breakfast is the best meal ever. Like maybe when we get off this call, I might go make myself some pancakes for dinner. That might happen. I know. I might. I got to do a Twitch stream after this. I might go do some. Uh, I might make some scrambled eggs after that or something. That sounds amazing. And mm-hmm. I know this is. We had some questions we were going to work through, but I did say in the intro about how you have all these social media pages and platforms and some I have never even heard of. Can you tell my listeners what social media pages you do have since you mentioned Twitch? Oh, wow. I have, uh, I have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on Snapchat. I'm on TikTok, Twitch, LinkedIn. Uh, where else am I? I'm all over the place. I have my podcast page. I have a WordPress blog. I'm all over the place. I think I counted up one time and I'm on like nine different platforms. Nice. And they're all the tattoo historian. Yes. If you just look up the tattoo historian, you'll be able to find me. Uh, the only one it's not is Twitter. It's at, at inked historian, I N K E D historian because tattoo historian didn't fit. Oh, I was like, did someone already take that name and you had to like track them down? No, apparently it's just too long of a name and uh, I couldn't use it for Twitter. There was a word count cut me off so i made it inked historian well boo twitter we should write a letter i know they made you they allowed you to do you know bigger posts now they should allow us to have bigger names yes we will write a strongly worded email (laughs) yes yeah we can do that for sure (laughs) but yeah thanks for telling us or telling me and our listeners that because i was like he has so many it's like super cool you're like the hip kid with all the social media I, I've been told like on a number of occasions, they, they're, they're like, you've suddenly become like the cool historian. And, I, and I, I've never been cool in my life. Anyway, <laughs> so I don't know what that means. Uh, but I'm like, I guess, thank you. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's kind of funny to uh, meet people on the street once in a while. And uh, I'll be at a historical site or I'll be at a, uh, you know, a historical event or something. And someone will come up and they'll say, hey, you're the tattoo historian. And I have to ask them first their name. I, I want to introduce myself to them. But second, where did they find me? And it's really interesting to see the different demographics as far as where they found me at. And uh, I enjoy that. That is super fun. Yeah, you're getting noticed now. Next next thing you know, you have to start signing autographs. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I know the first time the first time I was ever recognized in public was like in 2016, like the year after I made the brand. And I was walking around the campus with a friend of mine at GW in DC and students were saying that they followed me. And I'm like, wow, I never thought, you know, that I would be known in DC. And now it's crazy. Cause I'm on like, I've been on C-SPAN and all this other stuff. And it's just wild to see how this thing has developed. That is fantastic. You're getting noticed and people are following you. That is super cool. Yeah, it's it's really, it's been interesting to watch because uh, I'm going into my sixth year of having the brand already. And I remember when it was, there were 40 people on my Facebook page where I first started and they were all friends and uh, which is how you start and the word of mouth gets around. And now I think I just popped over 6,000 people in there. So it's, it's just crazy how much, uh, it's impacted my life and, uh, impacted our people's lives in a positive way. I get the emails from time to time, uh, from, from people who say, you know, I didn't really fit into the history field and I found you and now I think I can do my own thing and 
at least make it part-time if not full-time later on and that's a really beautiful thing to to get in your inbox once in a while no definitely can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to create the tattoo historian yeah, uh, I was, at the time, I was working as a contractor uh, alongside the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I was an archivist and historian. Uh, I had a four-year contractor. It was supposed to be four years. And I was in my first full year of the contract, and I figured, well, in three years, uh, I'm going to have to come up with an idea for a job, and I need to f- let people know what I do. And, you know, LinkedIn wasn't that you know, I don't know. It wasn't that inviting of a site at the time. It's drastically changed now. It's amazing. But uh, back in 2015, it was a totally different site and it was, there was no reach and uh, you wouldn't be seen a lot, but everybody seemed to be on Facebook. And so I was like, well, maybe if I make my own page, like a professional page and showcase what I do as an archivist and historian and uh, document my journey, but also document the materials we were coming across, the photos and the, the diaries and the primary source materials. If I did that, maybe people would see that this is basically like a, a living, uh, a digital living resume. And uh, so that's why I started it. I started it actually to find my next job, uh, my next full-time job. And, uh, you know, it developed over time where I started to see that I really didn't fit in with the normal history crowd where I was, I couldn't sit in the cubicle nine to five and stay sane. And, uh, but I could work 14 hours on my brand and, and go out and do 12 hour live streams and stuff. And I loved it. And just developed from that little cubicle uh, in the archive and and a cell phone and a tablet, you know, paper that was sitting there that I was making notes on and that's all I needed. And, I started the brand that way. That sounds so fun. I know I'm with you about the nine to five. Like I can do a full 16 hour day of teaching and venturing around battlefields, but to make me sit in an office for eight hours a day, like it took a while to get used to. Yeah. And I think the thing with me was that it was the same form every day, filling it out every single day for every single thing we were doing. And so when you have a, a brain like I do, which is constantly going at like 110 miles per hour, and you're kind of artistic in how you present or you're an interpreter of history, you're really being boxed in. And uh, I felt like I wasn't being, I wasn't being utilized to my fullest potential and there was no room for me to move up uh, as far as a contractor was concerned. And so I decided to try my own thing. No, that's great. Have you always been into history and always been kind of creative? I've always been creative. I've always been, uh, you know, I was an artistic kid. Um, I've I've lost all that. It's I can't even draw a stick figure now (laughs) without messing it up. But I was very artistic and I loved art. I still love art and uh, art history and such. Um, But I really didn't get into history until I was about eight years old. Uh, I remember I was on a visitation with my father. Uh, I grew up in a broken home and every other week on a Friday, my, my dad would, you know, uh, take me for visitation. But for this one day, he picked me up. I think I was on a Saturday or something like that. And it happened to be in 1988 and it was the 125th anniversary of the battle of Gettysburg. And we went to Gettysburg and 
my dad never really showed interest in history, which is why I don't know why he took me. Uh, but I remember being seven years old and at that time in 1988, going on eight years old. And I was just enthralled with it. I'm like, wow, I never knew this existed. And I don't know, you know, how to take it. I want to learn more about these stories. And by the time I turned eight, a few months later, I was already, you know, gung ho into this stuff. I was all, all in with history and uh, turning into a little history nerd pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I think I was about nine years old when I started reading Bruce Cat and, and, and stuff. So I was well developed beyond my age group uh, with this kind of stuff because you don't see many nine year olds reading Bruce Cat nowadays. Uh, so <laughs> that's where my uh, that's where my love really started of history. And it grew from there. I became a historical interpreter slash reenactor slash living historian, whatever people want to call me uh, when I was 12. And uh, I was just enthralled with it. And growing up in a broken home, it allowed me to be around people who were my dad's age. And it kind of filled in that gap that I needed as a young man, where I needed someone to guide me in life and uh, figure things out. And I think that's why I was so involved in historical interpretation for a quarter of a century. You know, I was, I was heavily involved for 25 years. And uh, because it had given me so much and I wanted to give so much to it. That is such a cool story. Like I have weird stories of me, like sitting in the basement, like writing all the presidents and vice presidents over and over again. Yeah. You actually have really cool stories of like, you know, hanging out with reenactors and playing with muskets. Yeah. I mean, there's not too many 12 year olds out there who could, you know, say that they, they operated an original Napoleon cannon from the civil war or something. And I was out there 13, I was pulling the lanyard on them. And it was like, I was just deep into this stuff and really, really engaged. And I fell in love with it. And uh, I did, like I said, I did 25 years of it. Uh, I had kept most of the list of events that I had ever done. And I, when I, when I stopped, when I, when I tell people when I retired, mm-hmm. uh, I was up over 500 events. So I, I had dedicated a lot of my life to that. In fact, one year I did 42 events in one year. And, Holy cow. And some people don't do that in five years, and I did it in one. Uh, I only had 10 weeks off. So it was, it was my life. You know, and it, were those all different events, uh, or were they mostly the American Civil War? Mostly the American Civil War. Um, I was uh, 17, just got my driver's license, needed to get out of the house, and uh I joined three reenactment organizations at one time and I was on the road and I was, I was going out and, you know, doing campaigner style stuff. And that's why my, my back is kind of sore and, you know, my knee isn't what it used to be and all that. But uh, I, I really dedicated my time and hence dedicated my life to the study of the past. Yeah. And you, and you grew up pretty close to Gettysburg, correct? Yes. I grew up uh, 25 miles Gaysburg. I grew up in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, so it was only a 30 minute drive to Gettysburg. And, you know, you kind of take that for granted after a while. Uh, it's kind of like if you meet someone who like grew up in Normandy, France or something, and it's just like, oh, yeah, that's where the invasion happened. That's how they say it. And, uh, you know, so it's like, yeah, you know, it, Gettysburg happened over here and I'll take you there if we want to go over and stuff like that. So, it's kind of like people talking about going to the mall. That's the way we go to Gettysburg. So, 
Yeah, I grew up about an hour and a half from Gettysburg. So yeah, the uh, the idea of like a day trip to Gettysburg was super easy to do. Do you remember the old cyclorama? Oh yeah, I remember the old cyclorama right there on Cemetery Ridge. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember when they tore it down. Yes, well, it it needed to go. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah definitely. It was I agree. falling apart. Yes, it was. I'm glad that's all been rehoused and everything. So, do you remember when you were seven, going on eight? Do you remember your first impressions of the cyclorama, um, or your first impressions of Gettysburg as a whole? Were you just kind of taken aback by how large it was, how pretty it is? Because it is a remarkably pretty battlefield. Yeah, I I don't think we saw a cyclorama when I was seven. I didn't see that till a couple years later. Um, but I remember little snippets of it, kind of like little flashbacks, you know, where you think about just parts and components of something you witnessed as a kid. Uh, I remember going down Steinware Avenue, you know, in 1988. Um, and, and I remember the buildings that were still there and how that's changed. But the battlefield-wise... Uh, I remember the, the biggest thing I remember was going on little round top and uh, being just, there, there was a ton of people there. And I believe we were there on July 2nd. Uh, we were there over the actual anniversary. So I think we were there the second and we're standing on little round top. And uh, you know, I, I remember my dad just kind of looking around and not really, he's taking it in, but not taking a big interest. And I'm just, overwhelmed by this spot you can see the entire valley and you see all this hustle and bustle of, of people and tourists and and uh it was just a really i don't know it was like it was like a a high for me it was a natural high where i'm like what is going on here and i need to know more about this because if this many people are enjoying it then there's something going on here and when you're a kid you know the big high for you is like going to the the county fair or uh you know something like that uh you know and then to go somewhere where there's like there's nothing going on here except for open fields and like tourists it was like this is different i need to understand what this all means so yeah i remember i remember standing on low round top though i believe it was july 2nd of 1988 when i was there uh because i saw a photo and i think it was labeled july 2nd and uh, so you know 125 years after the battle we're standing on that spot and just a, a really interesting time to be a young man. Yeah. And you said you've never been cool. That is the coolest thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just never, I was never the cool kid in school. I'll say that. And um, well, you're a cool kid to historians. <laughs> well, I, I had a, I, I basically took an idea and ran with it, Angela, where I was never uh, seen, let's say, by the the heads of our field you know the 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 people who had been in academia for 20 or 30 years who had written so many books that that i can't even you know fathom i was never in that crowd you know and i never thought about myself in that crowd that was the cool crowd to me and what i basically did with the brand was i said well if i can't get into the cool kids party i'm gonna have the party and i'm gonna invite the cool kids hmm. So that's how the brand really materialized into me becoming more of an interviewer slash historian, a conversationalist, uh, than me going out and showcasing my talents as a historian. I obviously have the background and I have the knowledge and I have the understanding of all uh, a lot of different things, 
but I've really wanted to just showcase what others were doing in the field because I don't think they were being seen by the by the next generation of historians. And I figured, well, if I can bring them on and uh, and hang out with them a little bit and have them understand that I'm not, you know, there to take advantage of the situation and just be a conversationalist instead of an interviewer, I think that makes me uh, automatically part of the club, let's say. And that's how I tried to get in the side door with that. No, and you've inspired me with that. Like one of the main themes of this podcast, correct, is helping others and you having people on your podcast, on your live streams to get their voices heard has inspired me to also do the same. What about those graduate students who are doing excellent work, mm-hmm. but they, no one knows who they are yet because they're just graduate students. Well, they still deserve to get their voice heard. Right. Yeah. Even if they're not, you know, six year old white male who has published 15 books. They're still an important historian and they're still doing important work. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I really love the fact that you've picked up on that as well as like, this is your, this is a baton that you've picked up as well. And you're advancing it uh, with, with your, with your brand and, and such, because there's so many voices out there that need to be heard yet that haven't been heard. Um, it's really cool to, to have someone come on who's a grad student and, they'll come up to me, you know, digitally now and they'll say, wow, you interviewed, you know, Harold Holzer or you interviewed Gary Gallagher or someone like that. And now you want to interview me. And I'm just like, yes, this is why we started this so that we're all showcasing our chops as historians or anthropologists or archeologists or whatever it may be. And I think when you open the door like that for a lot of people, you give them value, you know, to their time. They get to showcase what they're made of. They get to interact with your audience. That really brings it home that they're making a difference. And uh, I remember what it's like being a grad student and no one was listening to me. And I don't, and I didn't have a mentor. So I don't want that for someone else. And I think that was the other thing that I wanted to pick up on. I wanted to be a mentor to others behind the scenes. And uh, I often tell people, I'm like, if you need something, you just shoot me an email and we'll talk. Uh, so I'm very accessible in that way and very authentic. And I think that really helps. Yeah. And I, for people who are listening, this is completely true. John is one of the nicest guys, most down to earth and just fun to talk to, as you could probably already tell. Thank you. So thank you. Find him on his nine social <laughs> yeah. media platforms and you can talk to him. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you can find me just about anywhere now. Anywhere. Um, but let's go back to like your background in Pennsylvania, your childhood. Was there any experiences from growing up um, that influenced or continues to influence your podcast? Wow, that's a great question. I re- I remember like I was probably in my early teens and, you know, the sports radio was really big uh, and it was starting to be it was you were starting to see it on TV where they were running stuff, sports radio and, and dare I say, Howard Stern, hmm. you, they were starting to televise the radio shows and uh, I didn't really watch them, but I was like, wow, uh, this is becoming pop culture now on a grand scale. I would love to have a radio show and, uh, and talk about, it, even though I hated my voice and uh, sometimes I still cringe at it where I'm just not used to it. And, 
uh, it was very hard for me to edit my first podcast. Cause I'm like, wow, I don't like my voice. Um, but I always wanted to be on the radio when I was a kid and I always wanted to talk to people. I didn't want to have, I didn't want to be a DJ or anything like that. I don't want to talk with people about history or culture, stuff like that. Uh, NPR radio really influenced me growing up. So that's where the, the seed was planted really where it's like, I would love to do a podcast. And uh, obviously I didn't think about that till my late twenties, early thirties uh, because we didn't have podcasts when I was a kid, but uh, it was just out of my price range because back then we didn't have the apps we use today to do podcasts. We, we didn't have the, the smaller recording devices and such. I didn't want to have a room just dedicated to all the stuff I would need and I couldn't afford it. Uh, so it wasn't until recently within the last few years that I actually got to, uh, get my podcast up and running. And that's been an amazing experience because I've been able to tweak it the way I want to tweak it and do it my own way. And I get asked a lot, you know, what, what podcasts do I listen to? And I'm like, I barely listen to history podcasts. I hate to say that on your podcast, but, but <laughs> I barely listen to history podcasts because I don't want someone else's style to influence my style. And uh, so I listen like business podcasts and science and stuff like that. But it gives me ideas, right. For my content, as far as how can I have uh, someone who does science history or how can I use the business stuff for my business? Um, So, yeah, it's been, it's been one of those things that's been in my head for 20 years and it, it only started to come to fruition uh, about three, four years ago, I guess. I don't even remember how long ago I started the podcast. It all starts to run together uh, after a while. It was probably three years ago I started the podcast. And um, so that was the other thing. It, it's, it's patience. It's being in it for the long haul and being like, I'm, I'll wait until I'm ready. And uh, I was just ready about three years ago. And I, and I jumped in and so far, it's been uh, an amazing experience. I've done just about everything I could think of on there as far as I've done myself speaking about a historical topic. That's rare that I do that. Um, I'm very humble. I don't want to pat myself on the back saying this is well all I know. Uh, I do a lot of interviews on there, just like a lot of other uh, podcasts. And then now it's kind of flipped into... Uh, what it's like being a historian and how to do history on social media and the internet. And uh, I've been getting great joy out of that because usually when I'm asked to go to a conference or speak to an audience uh, or uh, basically like mentor or advise nonprofits uh, and other entities, it's not about history. It's about doing history. And, uh, I get a great enjoyment out of that. So, so the podcast has taken so many different angles over the years. It's kind of funny. Well, yeah, it grows, right? You're in different seasons of life and you're in also different seasons of podcasting. Yeah. And I, and I've noticed that I've found my stride, right. Where I'm like, I, I was doing the interviews and everything else like that, but someone could have heard this person on four other, you know, podcasts. And, and I was starting to wonder if, if maybe I should stop the podcast. Cause I really started to like the live streams better. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I still do. I like doing the live streams better than I do the podcast because I get to interact with my audience in real time. And I get to interact with the person digitally face to face. And I really enjoy that. Um, 
But since I've made the turn to more the business end of doing history, being a historian, branding as a historian, I've really found my stride in that manner. And my numbers also showcase that. So uh, they've basically doubled uh, since I've started to bring extra value to other historians in that way to allow them to see that they can do so much with even a niche uh, thing that, that you can make it work. Yeah, for sure. Um, you keep saying the word branding, and I know what you mean when you say branding, and I know you have an episode all about branding, which I will share on my social media so they can check you out. But can you tell my listeners more about what you mean when you say branding? Sure. Yeah, it's not like the old the, the days of cattle when you have to brand your cattle. <laughs> oh, that sounds things. awful. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, so, so branding is showcasing yourself for what you're interested in, who you are, what you study. I see everybody out there, including you, Angela, as a brand. Everyone is a brand in their own way, in their own shape, in their own form. And basically the way we used to network uh, at conferences and handing out business cards and doing all this other stuff, which we'll do again after COVID. That's a branding thing. Uh, and when you think of it that way, it becomes so much easier, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm just branding myself here and saying, this is who I am. This is what I study. I would love to collaborate with you doing X, Y, Z. Uh, branding is basically just taking either something that you've created uh or that you study and making it your own and being known for that branding yourself as a historian who deals with whatever it may be. Uh, luckily for me, I found a brand name, you know, and I was like, I didn't want to be just known as John Heckman. I wanted to be known as something else and something a little bit more inviting. And, uh, I fell into the tattoo historian brand, uh, and I say I fell into it because I typed into Facebook in 2015 and no one had taken it. And I'm like, Oh, okay, I'm going to take it. <laughs> and uh, my brand became a social media brand, which then became an LLC. Uh, so I made it a limited liability company and it's just grown from there. So I branded myself, not only as John Heckman, uh, you know, grads have with a graduate degree in history, I branded myself as the tattooed historian. And uh, branded it so much so that people, you know, once in a while, maybe three times a year, I'll get stopped and they'll say, hey, it's the tattooed historian. They don't say, hey, it's John or hey, it's the, this person. They'll call me by the brand name. And uh, so I know that when I'm branding and, and, and getting the word out about it, uh, uh, about the tattooed historian brand, that it's working because it's actually taken on a life of its own. And now. Uh, you know, it's really, I've gone all in on it because I'm known as the tattoo historian. Now, if the tattoo historian brand fails, then I feel like I failed. So I'm, I'm all in on it. I have so many things to say about this. One <laughs> is kind of the idea that about branding, but you've actually branded yourself because you do have tattoos. Yes. Yeah. So have you gotten more tattoos since you started the tattoo historian? Oh yeah. I've, I've gotten, uh, not that many, but I may have done three more since I started the brand, which for me is kind of slow. I remember one year I got seven in one year. Um, so yeah, I've done, I've, I'm up over 30 
tattoos now, I think, or I'm around 30. I've lost count. <laughs> so you really, so you actually have you know, branded yourself. Yeah, I, I don't have my brand logo on me. I'm not, I'm not that egotistical or anything, but um, it, it's property of. Yeah, I, I don't have anything like that. I don't have any like logos of uh, uh, platforms or social media stuff or anything like that. Uh, but uh, I have historical tattoos on my body that's from woodcuts from the 1880s all the way up to basically the 1960s uh, art up that up that far so I, I started to tattoo myself in the old school style and and um, I have a hard tack and coffee tattoo and, and all kinds of stuff going on so I saw tattoos as uh, a great way to do interpretation and we could talk about second world war history or we could talk about second world war era tattooing and I could show my arms and show you know second world war era tattooing and what how did you get tattooed where did you get tattooed and stuff like that so my body became an exhibit space almost where it's like hey i can show you original what these guys would have had in 1943 or what they had in 1918 and uh so you know i'm my brand isn't just a tattooed historian i am a heavily tattooed historian you are yes so, you are do you have a favorite tattoo pardon do you have a favorite tattoo? Uh, wow, that's a great question. Uh, I have a I have an old style American Eagle with the shield uh, across my shoulder blades. Uh, that's one of my favorites that I got. Uh, I also have this uh, cartoonish style duck who's pointing at himself and it says "Who me?" And uh, because I was usually the person who was you know not fitting in in the cubicle life, and I was you know, causing quote unquote trouble. And I'm like, hmm. who, me? I'm not causing trouble. What are you talking about? And uh, stuff like that. I like to have the fun, the fun tattoos on me. Um, I have my grandfather beside his Sherman tank on my, on my leg, uh, which I got on a father's day years ago. Uh, first time I ever had him in a tattoo shop. The only time he's ever been in a tattoo shop. And uh, so that was fun. But yeah, the, they they all have meaning to me, and I really really enjoy them. I have a skull with like this this blue owl sitting there, and he's got big googly eyes, and I'm like, that's just a fun one, and and stuff like that. I actually have four F tattooed on me also uh, because I couldn't serve in the military due to my asthma, and uh, I'm asthmatic and I have allergies, and they're like, no way, you're not. <laughs> I tried four times, and they're like, don't come back. That's enough. You're like a regular old tattooed Captain America, just repeatedly trying. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going back. I'm I'm the first person in my family not to go to war since like the 1600s. I'm like, I'm like Lieutenant Dan here. And uh, so I, I was really, I felt really terrible about that. You know, I'm the last in my family and now I can't go and serve. And one day just clicked. I'm like, I'm going to own it. And uh, I said, well, I'm labeled 4F for life now. So I'm going to go get it tattooed on me. So I got 4F tattooed on me with Felix the cat kind of shrugging his shoulders on top of it. So I think the best thing about you, John, is you are unapologetically yourself. You are just authentic. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for that because I've always wanted to just be myself around people. And, and uh, I never wanted to put on a guise. That's, that's too difficult. I just want to be me. And I want to do it my way and have fun and help others. And I appreciate that. 
Yeah, and that's the best thing, well, best way to also have a brand. Instead of making up a brand that you have to struggle with putting on every day or pretending someone you're not, just be yourself. That's your brand. And then live yep. that to the best of your abilities. Right. Everyone's a brand. You, you are your own brand. Uh, you don't have to do anything special. You just have to be you. And uh, once people understand that, it gets a lot easier. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I know we do want to go back to your background in Pennsylvania, speaking about being authentic and being yourself and all that fun stuff. Because when we talked originally about this podcast, you were telling me about your kind of experience near the Pennsylvania Dutch Mm -hmm. and your background in Pennsylvania and something about a food called hogma. Yes, hogma. And I do want to promise, you know, fulfill my promise to my listeners that we will have history, food, and helping others. So can you tell us a little bit about Hogma? Yes, my my family, I am, I'm two generations removed from hog farmers. Uh, they've been raising pigs for centuries here in the valley uh, since basically the Seven Years War, uh, the French and Indian War. And they've been in this valley ever since, and they've been farmers, and they've been hog farmers, pig farmers, ever since, until uh, my grandfather was the first to get off the farm. Uh, so we're not far removed from working with hogs uh, every single day. And when you grow up in Pennsylvania, and you grow up around your, your relatives who raised hogs or had pigs and such, you start to understand the cuisine around a hog. And... Uh, the, the wonderful part is you don't put any of the pig to waste. You don't waste any of it. Uh, you use the entire pig when you, when, you, when you use the pig, when you butcher the pig, when you, do, when you eat it, you use the entire pig. Uh, some people have seen pig's ears. Some people see pig's feet. Uh, one thing, though, that we're known for in my family is hog maw. And I want you to think of it as not much different than what you have when you have sausage, like we were talking about breakfast earlier, uh, when you have like a sausage casing, that's the intestines of a hog that's there. And with all the stuffing in it, this is taking it to the next level. And this is making it a large casserole. Uh, you take a whole pig stomach and then you get uh, about two and a half pounds of potatoes, uh, an onion, smoked sausage, uh, maybe some Italian sausage, some fresh sausage, salt and pepper. And some people put uh, a cabbage in it as well. They shred it up. And you you put everything together like a like a mix in a bowl. Uh, and you and you stuff it into a pig stomach. It's just like stuffing sausage. Uh, but you pack it nice and tight into a pig stomach. And it's kind of like Thanksgiving where uh, you sew up the the opening of the of the pig's stomach and then you place it in the oven uh it's 350 degrees for approximately four hours and this comes out and it is just a, a beautiful succulent uh casserole that's like a, a sausage and potato casserole and uh you don't have to eat the the skin if you don't want to you know the stomach or anything i don't eat that but uh, i know other people who do and uh, i just eat what's inside it and it is amazing. And we've had it since I was a young child. It's been brought down through the generations of my family. Uh, we're, we're Germans, like, like Pennsylvania Dutch, and we're Scottish. 
So you get that kind of like sausage meets haggis kind of thing going on there. And uh, it really is uh, an awesome, heavy dish. And Pennsylvanians are known for their heavy dishes. If it's meat and potatoes, we'll eat it. And uh, I know that they asked me what I want for my birthday when I talk to my family. And I'm like, I want hog mall. That's all I want. And uh, it's, it's just an amazing piece of, uh, piece of culinary history that connects you with the culture of Pennsylvania and the farmers of Pennsylvania in a different kind of way. You know, it's funny because I grew up, what, maybe an hour, an hour and a half from where you grew up. Mm -hmm. And I had never even heard of hogmaw. But we have similar dishes with, like, pork and sauerkraut and, like, scrapple. Like, you don't waste mm -hmm. the pig. Right. And also, when you grow up, where I grew up, um, it's a very poor coal region. Uh -huh. And my family grew up very poor. So, we grew up eating the potatoes and the kind of leftover meat and just making it taste really good. And what's a way to make it taste really good is, you know, either wrap it up in something like a pig stomach mm. or you, you stew it really long with cabbage and carrots and onions. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not, it's not too different, even though I have never heard of it, <laughs> but there's something, there's something very similar. Like we, I don't know about you. Did you grow up having like pork and sauerkraut for New oh, Year's? Oh yeah. Every year we still do. We still have pork and sauerkraut every year. And my, my parents or my grandparents, God bless them, they make it a, a different way. It's not they put uh, brown sugar into the sauerkraut, and it makes it wow. it makes it really succulent and good. And I put you know brown gravy over that, and it becomes a really good Pennsylvania kind of heavy dish again. Um, but I, I was raised, and and you maybe were too. I mean, I, we've had scrapple, uh, we've had uh, different kinds of stuff, but there was always a lard can in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And you don't use butter or margarine when you cook in the skillet, you use lard. And how my cholesterol isn't through the roof, I have no idea. Uh, or did you or did you save like the bacon grease? So you would cook yeah. your bacon and then drain the bacon grease or use that then to cook your eggs or yep. what have you? Yep, we did that. I, I did that this morning. You know, I made the, <laughs> made the sausage first, had the grease in there, and I put my eggs in there, which is why I have no idea why my cholesterol is so low. Uh, I went to... The doctor a couple weeks ago and it was like my blood pressure is 118 over 76 and for a 40 year old guy who's grown up on this stuff that's pretty good so i have no idea how that's happened uh but well just keep going to the gym at 5 a.m and you'll be good yeah just go on three hours sleep i'll be fine uh but yeah it was it was growing up it was a lot of uh, you know the bacon grease the lard and all this other stuff that was happening and it's straight down from you know my great-grandparents great-great-grandparents and it's never really changed i think out of everyone in my family i probably eat the healthiest uh because i will eat a salad and <laughs> and they're after your bacon yeah and they're like why are you doing that and I, well i know i'm a little weird uh so yeah it's it's a different culinary experience than what a lot of people are used to i mean i could eat scrapple all day long that's that's fine it's, you know and uh but yeah, Pennsylvania cooking is, is some of the best in the country and it's so underrated and a lot of people don't know anything about it. So when you, when you come back out here though, we're going to have hog mall. Oh goodness. <laughs> well, I'll look at it as someone who doesn't eat meat. I'll eat the sauerkraut oh, or potatoes. From that's it. right. I forgot. You don't eat meat. Well, you can watch me eat it. Then. I'll watch you <laughs> eat it and you can tell me all about it. Do you talk to your family about history? 
do you tell them about like your show or is that kind of separate? Um, it's kind of separate because they don't understand it. Uh, my family still doesn't have the internet. They don't have a computer. Uh, they don't want a computer. They just have no interest. And so when I tell them I'm actually interviewing people on the computer, they're like, well, how are you doing that? We don't understand how this works. And so they're just, they kind of let me go as far as, you know, that's John's thing. He's making it work. We don't ask about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting to watch them because they don't understand how this is working. They don't understand why people would like uh, collaborate with me and pay me sponsorships to do live streams. That's totally weird to them. Uh, but I do know that they finally started to realize what I was doing uh, on a different scale when I showed up on C-SPAN uh, from one of the live streams and I sat them down at the dining room table and I'm like, I want you to watch this. It's coming on right now. And I put my laptop there and uh, luckily I had my phone. I used it as a hotspot because they don't have the internet. And, uh, and I opened it up and I'm like, just watch this. And I live streamed or I, uh, I streamed C-SPAN for them and they got to see me on national TV. And that, that was the moment they're like, okay, he's doing something here that's different. And they've kind of been hands off from them. They haven't been worrying about me as much as they were. And they're like, is this really a real job, John? And I'm like, well, it is now. Uh, it's, it's doing well. Um, so it's been, it's been a, a culture shock for them uh, to see what I've been doing. And, and they, they, are, they never went to university. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. So they never understood that. They never understood why people get paid to go to conferences or to speak at functions, I should say. Um, so it's just radical to them. Uh, but for the longest time, they were kind of questioning the whole thing. But when I came back home, um, when I moved back home after, after my marriage had failed and COVID hit, and I, I'm still taking care of my family during COVID, they kind of took a back seat and they're like, okay, John's been through enough. <laughs> We're not going to pick on him about this. <laughs> and uh, I think he knows what he's doing. So it's been really interesting to see how my family has embraced it due to uh, emotional trauma that I had been through in my personal life. And they're kind of like, okay, we're just going to let him go and do his thing and not worry so much. And now they're seeing that it, it actually works. And, um, it's been a really interesting thing though, to watch them change their minds about the whole thing. Cause when I went and got my degree in history, they're like, Oh, what are you going to do? Teach? Is that all? That's all you can do with that. Right. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to show them that you can do so much more than just teach or you can teach in a different way. I should say, uh, than just, yeah, it's a common misconception that you you're very limited with a history degree. There is so much you can do. Yes. Yes. And like, look at us, we're talking about podcasting and food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I have, I have a sponsor for my podcast. I have a sponsor for my live streams. So you can make an income, uh, with it. Uh, you know, when you don't have many bills, it works out pretty well. Uh, as long as you're not going into debt, you're fine. But it's it's just one of those things where if you're responsible enough and you you're not afraid to ask, I find too many people are afraid to ask others for either a sponsorship or would you like to collaborate with me? 
this is what we can do together. Uh, I find a lot of people are afraid of hearing no. And a lot of people are afraid of other people's judgment. And those are the two things that are really holding us back. Not only as a public history field or an academic field, but just in general, as a, as a people, uh, we're holding each other back because we're afraid of what someone's going to say about us. And I think that that really stifles a lot of good quality uh, content and, and just people being able to express themselves. And I think that's what the next hurdle we need to overcome. It's going to take a while, but I think that's the big one. Yeah. With, with, I think with positive conversations like we're having and inviting people to join us, we can slowly make a difference and help people feel more confident Mm -hmm. to be themselves and to put themselves out there. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, And and the other thing, Angela, that, that really kind of set my brand apart. I don't want to say that in a, you know, like I'm patting my back or anything, but I noticed that when I collaborated with other entities out there who had been doing history for a while, and maybe we collaborated on a live stream or we collaborated uh, out in the field doing something. I noticed that a lot of them don't police their site and they don't, you know, if someone says something off color or ignorant or foul, some of them don't police it. They let it go because they want the numbers. And I've never been about the numbers. I've been about creating a safe space for people to come in and be who they are and, and such um, and, and kind of cut the trolls out and, and the hate and the ignorance. I've never been afraid to ban people because, uh, for every one hater that I ban, I get five more people who feel safe now coming over and, and being a part of the conversation. And, uh, I think that, you know, it was a, a really good step for me to do because one, I've, I grew up around a lot of ignorance, uh, in the, in the reenacting field, which is a totally different podcast. Uh, but, but I don't want to go through that again and I don't want to hear it. And I know the dog whistles and I know everything about it because I heard it all. So when I see it on one of my sites, I immediately knock it out. And, um, I think that that's helped my brand grow also because I'm getting people on the live streams or I'm talking with people in public who are, who maybe were afraid to, uh, be who they want to be and be who they are online because they were afraid of trolls or, or hate mm-hmm. and such. So I think that allowed people to really open up and I'm really happy that I've been able to be one of the people to, to make this a welcome area for people. Yeah, for sure. Like we welcome constructive criticism. We welcome great conversation, but we do not suffer trolls and hate is not welcome. Right. Yeah. You, for sure. Yeah. Disagreements are fine. Historians disagree all the time. Uh, but we, we don't yell at each other and we don't, and we don't, well, we might yell at each other, but it's in good fun. It's in good fun. Yeah. But we don't threaten each other or, or stuff like that. Um, and, uh, I think that that's, that's the key to growing our field is, uh, you know, uh, allowing people to voice, uh, their niche, allow them to, to showcase their talents without fear of being judged about how they look, how they dress, um, uh, stuff like that. Um, you know, cause I'm out there doing stuff in the field and you've seen pictures of me and, uh, I'm out there with some of my colleagues and they're all in collared shirts and all this stuff, which is fine. They, they may work in academia. That's how they do things. And that's how they feel comfortable. 
meanwhile, I'm wearing like a band t-shirt, you know, and I'm, I've, I've got like an Iron Maiden t-shirt on or a Black Sabbath t-shirt on and I'm spewing historical facts, but you know, the shirt or the tattoos aren't my resume. Uh, they're, they're not what make me a good historian. And uh, I want other people to be able to see that. So I get a lot of people who message me and they're like, I couldn't get this job because I have a tattoo below my elbow. And uh, we really... Well, guess what? Then you don't want that job, do you? That's what if they're I'm not going to welcome you, you don't want that job. That's what I tell them all the time. Uh, people say to me, you know, like, how can you... You don't look like a historian. I'm like, tell me what a historian looks like. I, I would love to see one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a unicorn. I've never seen one. It's like, that's the epitome of what a historian should look like. I don't like shoulds. You should do this. You should look like that. I don't like that. And I think that breaking that mold has helped others come out of their shell. And uh, you see it in the comment section when we're doing a live stream. A lot of people who have zero knowledge about what we're talking about aren't afraid to ask a question. Uh, and, I, and I really admire that about my followers. Yeah, I think the only, you know, the true historian is that, you know, in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, yeah. when they have famous historian on screen. Yeah, and even they kill him. So they kill him. That's the only thing I can think of when you think of like the quintessential <laughs> historian is just face famous historian. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to look like but that. and he was probably he wasn't real and he was killed. So That's moving right. on. That's right. I should tell you um, everything you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> but before we wrap up, I would love to know if you could recommend any book oh. to our listeners, what would it be? Any... And it doesn't have to be a history book. Any book. Wow. Any book that maybe like has really meant something to you, has influenced you as a historian or influenced you as a podcaster, influenced you as a cook. Um, Any book. I I would have to, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And, and uh, when I would sit in Gettysburg and I would uh, usually back in the day, I'd be found at the pub you know, at a pub hanging out, I would sit there with my drink and I would read Ralph Waldo Emerson. And there were mm. things that Emerson said that really caught me off guard and was like, wow, that's really interesting and a different way of putting it. I'm a big fan of Emerson. And uh, so I would say if you, if you looked at his readings and, and, uh, and such, I know that's a wild card right there. But I, but I loved Ralph Waldo Emerson's writings, and uh, I may not have agreed with everything, you know, that he that he came up with, but it was a powerful way to showcase how you can present something and allow it to just jump off the page. So I was looking at the world a different way when I'm reading Emerson, but I'm also looking at the prose and how to present. So uh, I was really, really intrigued and uh, overwhelmed in a good way by the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson. The other book that I would say, we'll, we'll, we'll do a history book, we'll do a history, a historical fiction book, uh, was the first Civil War book that I ever read when I was eight years old, and that was The Killer Angels. And that really was like something you sit back, you understand it's fiction, but it was just that book that was like, wow, you could do historical fiction too and make a mark on someone's life. Um, so those two... You know, go old school with Emerson and, and then, you know, try on some historical fiction and then, you know, kind of connect them 
and really see how you can influence literature and and storylines and presentations like interpretation that's the route i would go with it and i know that's way out of left field but that's the way i usually am i'll throw you a curveball no that's fabulous i never thought that we would have transcendentalism next to hogma but here we are here we are this that's what happens when you come to the tattoo historian there's gonna be something weird happen <laughs> and that so that's what we learned today we learned about hogma we learned about transcendentalism we learned about the killer angels and i highly recommend you going to watch them the movie gettysburg and eating some hogma that sounds like a delightful evening doesn't it sound like a delightful evening so thank you john so much for joining me tonight it was such a joy and i i'm totally going to make pancakes that's awesome. I'm going to go make some scrambled eggs after my Twitch stream tonight. So I thank you so much for having me on, Angela. It really means a lot to me. And uh, thank you to everyone who's listening to Angela as well, because she's doing some great things and I'm very proud of her. Oh, thank you, John. You're welcome. Thank